Heavenly Father, the psalmist says, Lord, if you should count iniquities, who could stand? Lord, those songs remind us that our sins, they are many. And Lord, if, if you should count our sins, Lord, there's not a one of us that could come and stand before you. And so the fact that we are in your presence together, Lord, that we've gathered together to worship you, Father, we know that it's only because of your mercy and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your Son. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that he is God who became a man, and he lived the perfect righteousness that we were unable to live, Lord. And dying on the cross, he bore all of our sins, our countless sins, upon his own self on that tree, and he bore your wrath, he suffered your justice, Lord, the penalty that was due to us, he took it upon himself. And he did that so that he could save sinners like us, Lord. Um, that's the only way that we could be saved. We are that sinful. That the only way that we could be saved was if God himself became a man and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And he rose from the dead showing that what he did was enough to save us forever. And Lord, May we constantly be reminded of our sins and reminded of your great mercy that you have shown to us in the gospel. Uh, Lord, how can we ever be prideful if we are keeping in view the gospel of your grace? And Lord, we, we are in constant need of your humbling. Lord, we are so apt to walk in pride, to forget um, that you alone are worthy of praise. And so we pray that this morning as we go to your word that you would remind us of that, that you would humble us and that you would draw us unto uh, the state of being where we are making our boast in you alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, after finishing the book of Hebrews, we took a break and we started going through some of the Psalms. And Lord willing, we'll keep going back to the Psalms periodically as we go through different books of the Bible, um, but I'd been thinking about quite a lot about what we would study next as a congregation, which book of the Bible we would go to next, and just bringing it before the Lord in prayer. And 1 Corinthians was the book that was constantly on my heart and mind, and so that's where we're turning to next. So the bulk of our Sundays coming up are going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. So today, I just wanted to give a brief overview of the whole book. So we're not going to start going verse by verse today, but we're just going to kind of get in our minds and our hearts the thrust of the book, why Paul wrote this book. And I also want to just talk about why are we going to 1 Corinthians and not another book of the Bible. You can't go wrong with whatever book you pick, so why 1 Corinthians? Well, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the city of Corinth itself. I think if we understand the history of that city a little bit, it'll help us better understand this letter. Corinth had been a Greek city until it was destroyed by the Roman military around 146 BC. And once it was destroyed, it laid waste for about 100 years until 44 BC, when Julius Caesar decided to rebuild it, to make it a Roman colony. In Rome, it was a vast empire. They would set up these colonies to strengthen their hold over that empire, to promote 
Roman culture, Roman values and ideas. And so Corinth was made one of these colonies. And Corinth became a very important trade city just by virtue of where it sat. If I had a map and I was holding it out, facing it toward you, you would see Asia over here and Europe, and then you'd see the boot of Italy coming down like this. And then if you were to trace that line further down, you would see a big chunk of land um, that looks almost just like a big island, except there's a little strip of land connecting it to the mainland. And there's two harbors on either side. And Corinth sat right on that little strip of land right there. And it was a convenient shortcut for tradesmen, for ships that were bringing goods. Because if you tried to sail south of there, the winds were very bad and it was a dangerous trip. And actually Paul, when he was being transported to Rome to stand trial, it was headed south of there that he experienced that shipwreck. So it was a dangerous route to take. So it was convenient to come up to Corinth and get into that one harbor and then just transport your goods over that tiny strip of land, get into another ship, and continue on your way. So Corinth was a very important trade city. It was a shortcut between the Mediterranean Sea and the Ionian Sea. And its placement there resulted in it becoming a very diverse city with many different ethnicities, many different cultures, many different religions, all inhabiting the same city. But the heaviest influence obviously was still Rome, being a Roman colony. And so when Paul came to Corinth, he must have thought that this would be a very strategic place to preach the gospel. Because if people came to faith in Christ in this city, being a trade city, that gospel would likely spread throughout the whole world. And when I studied the history of Corinth, studying the history of this city revealed that, as you might expect, it was a very pagan city. There was a lot of idolatry, a lot of different religions. There was a lot of sexual immorality. And in keeping with Roman culture, there was a very powerful desire for prestige, for wealth and honor. Everybody in the city was trying to climb the social ladder, whether through becoming wealthy or being a good speaker or trying to get the right connections with other people, anything you could do to exalt your name above the next guy. That's what Corinth was like. And when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you find that this church, these believers here in Corinth, they had not done a very good job of fully detaching themselves from the culture that they were saved out of. I want you to listen to what one commentator says about this church. He says, quote, Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what 1 Corinthians attempts to do, unquote. So this, this was a church that had a lot of problems. And before we get into what those problems were that prompted Paul to write this letter in the first place, I want you to first see how this church was started, the background of this church. 
So turn to Acts chapter 18, where we see the church background. Acts 18. This is recording one of Paul's missionary journeys, and he makes his way to Corinth. And we'll read verses 1 through 18 of chapter 18. Verse 1, After these things he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, that was the emperor of Rome, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Corinth was a good place to start a business. Um, and so that's where Priscilla and Aquila find themselves. And Paul, being of the same trade, he, he joins in with them. Verse 4, And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and was, was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man, a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. Just thinking about Corinth, you could imagine Gallio saying, Don't you Jews know where you're living? This is Corinth. We have like a hundred different religions here. What is one more to me? What do I care about this? Verse 16, And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And we'll stop right there. So Paul is spending 18 months in this one city, planting this church, and people are coming to know Christ. And as Jesus said in that night vision to Paul, Jesus had many people in that city that he was going to draw to faith. And that's the start of this church. Now I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we get kind of an inside picture as to 
the birth of this church, how it started. From Acts 18, we had a bird's eye view of how this church began. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, give us kind of the inside ground level view. God's perspective on how this church began. Verse 4, listen to what Paul says in opening up this letter to the church of Corinth. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. These believers had been saved, why? Verse 4, because of the grace of God that God gave to them. He gave them grace in Christ Jesus. That is how they were saved. And that's the only way that any of us have been saved. God has given grace to us. He has drawn us to himself by the cords of his gracious love through faith. And not only that, these verses tell us that God gave everything this church needed to grow and mature as a body of believers. Notice what he says in verse 5. In everything you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. God blessed these believers with a great deal of giftedness and knowledge. And that makes sense when you consider where these believers were living. They would need all the help they can get. They were living in Corinth. We can't imagine, well, maybe we can, living in our culture today. But they were inundated every day with temptations from the city in which they lived. They were being tempted daily to forsake Christ and to go back to the way of life out of which they were saved. They needed every resource God would give them. And so God graciously gave that to them. He gave them what they needed to grow and to stand strong in the faith. But when you read through this letter, we find that these gifts that God had given them, these believers were squandering those gifts. They were not making good use of them. They were perverting these gifts, this knowledge, this giftedness. They were not using it the way God wanted them to use it. These believers had become proud in their giftedness. They made the same mistake that so many of us make. They began to mistake their giftedness for maturity. They thought that their great giftedness meant that they were mature, that they'd arrived, that the sanctification road had been finished by them. God gave them so many gifts of the Spirit, however, not to say that they were mature, but to enable them to grow into maturity. There's a distinction there. Giftedness does not equal maturity. And that's important for us to understand because if we don't understand that, we will easily deceive ourselves. If you are gifted or if you are knowledgeable, you cannot conclude from that alone, that you are spiritually mature. Because giftedness does not equal maturity. Knowledge does not equal maturity. 
Giftedness and knowledge are given by God. They are intended by God to bring you to maturity, not to say that you are mature. I want to give you an example that really brought this lesson home to me. When I was in seminary, there was a very gifted preacher, and he would speak at some of our chapel services and some of the conferences that would be held at our church. He would come and speak. And if I mentioned his name, you probably would not recognize him because he's not well known in this part of the country. But out in California, in my seminary circles, he was well known. And this man was someone that I looked up to as a preacher. He's someone I wanted to emulate my own preaching after because he was crystal clear. He was so understandable when he would exposit the word of God, proclaim the word of God. And he seemed on the outside anyways, to be very careful in how he handled the scriptures. You could always see from the scriptures why he was saying what he was saying. And he was always doctrinally sound. Every T was crossed, every I was dotted. Could not find any error in anything that he was saying. And on top of all of that, he was extremely passionate. I don't think I've ever seen a preacher more passionate in the pulpit than this man was. So he was someone I, I would listen to his sermons. But it wasn't long after I left seminary that I heard about this man. I heard that this man, during ministry, had had multiple affairs. And he had hidden that from his congregation. And that broke my heart because there was a man I looked up to but it also left me in disbelief because I asked myself, how can you preach like that when you are living the way the man was living? How can you preach the gospel and live a life that is so contradictory to what you're preaching? And not only that, but it scared me because I saw how easily you can deceive yourself. You can stand up in the pulpit and preach a great message, but still be living in total sin, still be an infant in Christ or an unbeliever completely. And so that was a wake-up call from the Lord to me, and it reminded me of 1 Corinthians, who mistook, mistook their giftedness for maturity. And the lesson to me was, say, my situation, my position in the church, you can apply it to any, you know, any position, any ministry in the church, if I preach a good sermon and someone up comes up to me and says, wow, good sermon, or if you're stacking chairs and someone says, I love how you stack those chairs, or whatever the ministry might be, you cannot conclude from that that your walk with the Lord is going well. You cannot draw that conclusion. It doesn't necessarily follow. And that was clear in the, the life of that preacher. It's clear in these believers in Corinth. You cannot conclude that. And these believers, they had fallen into that trap. Many times throughout this letter, Paul refers to their arrogance. He says they're puffed up in their minds. They're puffed up. They think they've arrived. I want you to see this. Turn to chapter 4. You see it many places, but you see it very clearly in chapter 4. Paul has been addressing the schisms that are in the church. They're saying, I like Paul. I like Apollos. I like Cephas. The really spiritual one said, I like Jesus. 
And he's addressing that. And in chapter 4, verse 6, he links those schisms to their arrogance. Verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. They had become arrogant on behalf of one against the other. One said, I'm of Paul, so I'm better than you. The other said, I'm of Apollos, so I'm better than you. Others were saying, I'm of Jesus, so clearly I'm better than you. They were arrogant. They were going, their arrogance was leading them to go beyond Scripture. They were no longer anchored to Scripture because of their pride. And so verse 7, Paul takes a needle to their balloon heads when he asks them this question, this question here. For who regards you as superior? That kind of just pops the balloon, doesn't it? If you preach a good sermon or if you sing a good song or if you do some other act of service and you get puffed up within yourself and you think, wow, I'm pretty special. And then you read this verse and the Lord through this verse is saying, who regards you as superior? God does not regard you as superior. It's only you who thinks you're something when God knows that you're nothing. He goes on in verse 7, he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Neither one of us can draw a single breath unless the Lord allows it, let alone come up here and preach a sermon or sing a song, or take a meal to someone of your own strength. You cannot boast in yourself about that. God gave you that gift. He enabled you to do that thing. But they're boasting. Verse 8, Paul lays on the sarcasm pretty thickly here. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And it's clear he's being sarcastic because he then goes on to explain that you haven't become kings. You think you've become kings, but you haven't. He says, indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without, without honor. Spiritual pride. This is the core problem in the church of Corinth. Spiritual pride is fatal to a Christian's sanctification. Pride is like spiritual pesticide. I do pest control Sometimes we use certain pesticides that are called IGRs, insect growth regulators. And so when you spray that substance on a bug or you put bait out for that bug to eat, it stops their physical development so that they cannot reach the point to where they begin to reproduce. And so they die before being able to reproduce and eventually the population just dies out. And spiritual pride is like that. Pride kills churches that way because you think you've arrived, you stop growing, and therefore you stop discipling, and eventually the church doesn't grow, it just dies out with the existing members. 
because they were too proud to keep following Christ. And if you're not following Christ, how can you disciple someone in following Christ? You cannot. The moment you become spiritually proud, the moment that you think that you have arrived spiritually, that is the very same moment that you have started backsliding into sin. And what is so dangerous about pride is that you will not even realize that you are backsliding into sin because you have become too proud to recognize your sin, to confess your sin, to repent of your sin. And not only that, but a spiritually proud person cannot receive correction. They cannot receive correction. A spiritually proud person will not grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. He will not grow because he thinks he knows it all already. He doesn't need anyone to teach him. And how dare anyone presume to rebuke him because he's not the one who needs to change. Everybody else needs to change. Don't come to me saying that I'm in sin. You're in sin. You're in sin for saying I'm in sin. How dare you do that? That's spiritual pride. It opens you up to all sorts of immoral behavior and theological error because it causes you to go beyond what is written. You're no longer tethered to Scripture anymore. Because what do you need Scripture for? You're already just like Jesus. You've arrived. You might as well write your own Bible. And that's exactly what we find in this letter. I just want to give a couple of examples. First, spiritual pride leading to immorality. Turn to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. You see how arrogance is inseparably tied to immorality. When you reach the point to where you think you're better than the Apostle Paul, that you don't need correction, that you have everything you need, you've already arrived to perfect Christ-likeness, when sin occurs, you're just going to overlook that because I'm perfect. That can't be sin. That can't be sin. Otherwise, that would mean I'm not perfect, but I'm not willing to acknowledge that. And so this grave sin is happening within this body of believers and they just overlook it because of their arrogance when instead they should mourn over their sin. So pride, it leads to immorality, but it also leads to theological error because you go beyond what is written. Turn to chapter 15 and verse 12. Paul says, verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? That's a pretty big error to, to come to the point to, you, to where you say there is no resurrection from the dead. And this must not have just been some random whisper that occurred in the congregation. It must have taken some degree of 
uh, rootedness within this body because Paul spends 58 verses writing about the resurrection. This is a serious error that has crept into the church. And it is spiritual pride that left them open to this error. So the church in Corinth, they've started off well. They had everything they needed to continue on well, but pride has completely derailed them. And so Paul, he's having to humble them, correct them so that they can start growing again. They're saying they're mature, that they're spiritual, that they're wise. But Paul comes and he says, no, you're still babies in Christ. They've completely got things upside down. But he wants them to start growing again. Now that, that brings us to why we are at 1 Corinthians, why we're going to spend the next amount of time that we're going to spend in a book. Why is it going to be 1 Corinthians? Is it because I think we're having the same problems as a church as these believers were having? No, that's, that's not why. So why? Well, turn back to chapter 3. Back to chapter 3. We read this chapter earlier. In verse 10, Paul says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Again, he's, he's going back to the beginning. He's describing what happened when he planted this church. I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of the foundation of the church as being Christ. And he urges caution on how a church builds on that foundation. I want, I want us to think back into the history of our church here in New Woodstock. This church, some point along the way we kind of lost our way we were no longer standing firmly upon the foundation of Jesus Christ we were divisive just like the Corinthians we were not clinging to Christ the biblical Christ as he's revealed in his word we were not clinging to Christ as tightly as we ought to have been but over the past 20 years God has graciously relayed that foundation. God has set our feet firmly again upon Christ and his word. And over the past 10 years or so, the Lord has enabled us to build a proper framing upon that foundation. We blew up our old church constitution and our bylaws. We separated ourselves from denominations that had become corrupted denominations that we were unequally yoked to, and we sought to carefully, with the Lord's help, reform our church governance to be in line with what the scriptures actually say. So the framing is in place, but the building is not done. We still have to put up the drywall, and the wiring, and the plumbing, and the insulation, and the heating and ventilation, and the siding, and the roofing. There's still much to be done. We're not mature yet. But we need to be extremely careful in how we do that. And we need to make sure that we are constantly 
keeping an eye on the foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. Because if we lose the foundation, if we start building on sand, the whole thing will come crashing down and the Lord will remove his lampstand out of New Woodstock. So why are we in 1 Corinthians? We're here because this book will help us to keep our eyes on our foundation, the Lord Jesus. This book will help us to be very careful upon, uh, on how we build upon that foundation. We're not to just come up with our own ideas and run with that. We are to be anchored to the scriptures. We're not to go beyond what is written. And this book will keep us humble. It will remind us of what true maturity looks like. It's not knowing a lot of facts. It's not being gifted. God has given us those things to lead to maturity, not to say that we are maturity. This book will remind us that true Christian maturity shows up in being faithful to the gospel and in loving God and loving one another the way the scriptures call us to, serving one another, not puffing ourselves up, but laying ourselves down to serve one another. So that's why we're going to begin working through 1 Corinthians. Go back to chapter 1. This is where we'll close. Despite their many problems, Paul remained confident of how these Corinthian believers would end up. I read verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1, or 4 through 7, but we need to go through, through verse 9. So chapter 1, verse 4 again. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the key for this point. Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So because of that truth, we also, the Church of New Woodstock, we can be confident that the Lord will finish the good work that he's begun in us. Confident in the God who's faithful, not confident in ourselves, but in him. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us when we become arrogant, when we become puffed up, when we think we know more than others and so we think we're better, or when we think we have a better gift than someone else and so we think we're better. Lord, please forgive us. We're so apt to do that. But we thank you for your word which is a, a, a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's the only thing that can pop that bubble, Lord, to remind us that you know exactly who we are, sinners deserving of your wrath but saved by your grace. And anything good that is in us has only been given to us by you. We cannot boast in it. So, Lord, please keep us humble as we seek to grow as your church. We thank you that Ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus who builds his church. Help us to stay standing firmly and steadfastly upon him alone, because if we step foot off of him, we will not grow, but we will fall apart. So, Lord, help us to 
anchor ourselves to Christ, to anchor ourselves to his word as a church, Lord, and as individuals, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.